Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Alex Fetsky, entrepreneur, businessman, and thinker in the Bitcoin space. We talk about sales, how he got into debt during university, and how he made his first million dollars. Alex also tells us about his evaluation of altcoins and their sales pitches, how he sees Bitcoin sales pitch, and what this holds for the future. Alex is one of the more interesting people in the industry. If you've ever met him in person, you can see his personality shine right through. He knows how to make a good first impression, and you can tell he's got some background in doing that. When I first heard his story, I was intrigued that he didn't go into ICOs or altcoins because he certainly has the skill set to do so. As you will be able to tell from this interview, what prevented him was a strong sense of values, which he uses to promote Bitcoin instead. I hope you enjoy this interview. Alex Vetsky, how's everything going? Good, my man. I have been fighting the good fight, whether writing or, you know, laughing at people on the street wearing a mask and getting <laughs> thrown out of a couple of gyms. I actually, you know, what's funny in my pursuit of continually like refusing to wear a mask whilst training, I've been booted out of a few gyms, but I actually found my way to a gym run by this, this entrepreneurial guy who he's basically certified his gym as a kind of like a, an essential health center. So he's kind of like <laughs> navigated his way through the laws. So they don't close him down during lockdowns and there's no mask mandate inside this gym. It's fucking fantastic. Wow. Got to figure out how to hack that because there's a lot of demand for stuff like that. You're currently in Europe though, right? Like you're an Australian native and somehow you end up stuck in Europe for most of this? Well, without doxing myself entirely, I'm actually on a different continent now. So I was in Europe <laughs> all of 2020, and that kind of happened by accident. So I think you and I, we met in, caught up in Riga, actually. So I, mm -hmm. you know, that Riga trip was supposed to be three weeks. And here I am now, you know, 18 months later, uh, still haven't been back to Australia. So one thing led to another, led to another ended up here, there, everywhere. And then in March, I got locked down with a social justice warrior chick from Tinder in, in Germany. <laughs> <laughs> it was just crazy, 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 crazy 2020. And as most of us experienced, I think it was a, a year of radicalization uh, on both sides. So... Indeed, it has. But let's go back a little bit because you have a business in Australia and... You're now all over the world. How's that been given all of this COVID stuff? Well, it's interesting. So I guess a lot of people, when they hear me bash all the Corona stuff and all the lockdown stuff, they, you know, people kind of mistake it and think that I am complaining about my own situation, which I'm actually genuinely not. Like I, you know, I obviously run a fintech company and, you know, it's, it's a Bitcoin brokerage effectively much like you know if people are familiar with swan bitcoin or river financial and things like that so we, we were actually the first bitcoin dca product in the world and i remember when you and i first met when we had dinner at bitcoin sydney at the Shirasco place and you know it was it was something like you know the original idea emerged as a you know rounding up people's spare change into bitcoin you know that proved to be really hard with the broken legacy financial system so we kind of pivoted and we turned it into this sort of dollar cost averaging, set and forget a specific amount and just, you know, save Bitcoin. And, you know, luckily enough, and I, I must give credit to yourself, Tone and Giacomo, like you guys were three of the first like real 
Bitcoin only people, you know, that emerged for me because I was much later to the party than you guys were. Like I kind of started fucking around with Bitcoin in 2016 and, you know, I went down the Ethereum rabbit hole initially, you know, because I was interested in this and that. But as I started digging in there, I still remember my awakening. I, I went away for a weekend in Byron Bay and I took 20 white papers with me. And I swear to God, I came back maybe 30 IQ points dumber than when I left. I just couldn't believe the garbage that people, and like, and as I realized, I thought, you know, we've got this innovation of Bitcoin, which is, you know, this new uncensorable money. And here's these guys trying to scam people and built a network to enable scamming. And yeah, like I, you know, set out to, build like you know that sort of strengthened my resolve around building a bitcoin only company you know we i remember when we were raising capital for amber like i would go up at an an investment conference and i would be selling equity in a real business and i would find it extraordinarily difficult to maybe raise a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars and the idiot who got up after me was selling a token for some you know stupidity on the blockchain via an ico and he'd raised three million dollars and like mm. everyone thought I was retarded, but anyway, like I, I stuck strong, you know, we built the business, we did all that. And effectively today, you know, now we're sort of a lot more stable, you know, we've got a good product in the market, you know, we're doing really well in Australia. And coming back to your original point is how I've been able to, to manage it is I'm adamant that a business need, like the core component of a business is having good people. And in the beginning, there was a couple of challenges. I mean, you met one of the people that was my co-founders who turned out to be a complete fucking asswipe who I had to get rid of in the company. It was only I actually got rid of him a couple of months after we caught up, which was a shame. <laughs> so I paid for his damn course and then I had to dump him. But, you know, we, we sort of, we went through those growing pains a lot of startups do. And, you know, we've emerged on the other end. And thankfully, in 2019, I really found someone who I'd consider you know, my, I guess like a partner in crime in this business. Like we're really, he's the yin to my yang. His name's Pete and he's sort of my head of operations. And we just work really well together. And there was a couple of things along the way which forced us to start to become partially remote. My, our lead developer, a guy called Hayden is brilliant. His wife ended up getting a job in another state. So he moved with her because he could work remotely. She couldn't. And then one of our other guys had to move back to South Korea because... The Australian government, you know, is happy to, you know, let in some individuals who had no values in society, but, you know, individuals who apparently have been living there for 10 years and clearly competent and adding value to society, they're thrown out of the country. So mm. anywho, that happened and we were sort of already a little bit remote. And then, yeah, my whole journey kicked off and my intention was to come back to Australia, but then there was a couple opportunities to speak at a conference in Dubai, to uh, meet with some investors. Like I had to catch up with Pomp and Mark Gisco and stuff like that. So, so like it was weird. One thing led to another and, you know, we kind of had this quasi remote sort of setup and then that remoteness then obviously became a, a mandate once all this lockdowns and pandemia happened and, yeah, it was there was a bit of an adjustment, but I think we were sort of lucky in the beginning because we did that. And from there, like we've been, you know, th- there is challenges with working remotely, but we've been, I must admit, we've been thriving. So anyway, that's a long way of saying that we're managing it and we're doing okay. 
<laughs> which is great. So I brought you on this podcast because I know you have uh, sort of this uh, corporate background and sales and things like that. So why don't you tell our audience what it is your background actually is and what you've done before getting into Amber and so on, and then we could go from there. Okay, sure. So my background, actually, I was really academically strong when I was in university. So my parents are Eastern European, so I was sort of like the Balkan region, Macedonian. And, you know, my uncle was a really heavy influence in my life. He, he was quite a, you know, he was quite into politics and all sorts of stuff. But he was also a builder, so he used to be in the construction game. And I was really good with math and physics. You know, I became in the top 1% of the country for, for math and physics. And I ended up getting a scholarship to go to university to do engineering. So I picked civil engineering, was going to sort of carry the flag for the family and build, you know, houses and maybe one day, you know, we, we, it's actually funny now that I think about with all this Citadel memory going on, but me and my uncle had a dream to go back to Macedonia and actually build kind of a city over there outside of government control. It's really interesting, actually, that you just, I had totally forgotten about that. So anyway, that was kind of the path. Now I went to uni and I felt like I was surrounded by basically fiat individuals because I'd ask someone a question. I'd be like, oh, hey man, so what are you doing here? Why are you doing engineering? And they're like, well, I don't know. I've got nothing better to do. I'm like, seriously? Like you're going to study for something and potentially work in it for the rest of your life because you got nothing better to do? Like where's like the desire? Where's the drive? Where's the passion to do something? And that for me, I just, it really just felt strange. And I was, you know, always trying to buck the trend and do something crazy. So I took my scholarship money and I basically dumped it on the stock market. I started teaching myself to trade. And this is sort of in 2007. And I remember the first trade I ever placed was with this, like, he was an actual broker. This was sort of before really online broking took off. And like, I'd go to this guy's office and you know he was this big fat guy called doug and you know he convinced me to invest in some bullshit biotech company and i pumped you know most of my scholarship money into there and anyway after about three or four months it was worth like you know half of what i originally put in and you know i was like what's going on he's like oh you know there's an announcement of an announcement this was sort of like the sounds like ethereum people right (laughs) anyway so i'm sitting there and i was like screw this guy so i took the money out and during that time i kind of taught myself to understand financial derivatives, so options, warrants uh, in particular. And and I then took whatever I had left. It was kind of like somewhere between three to five grand. And and I actually traded like in between classes, in between lectures and tutorials, I would run to the library. And, you know, it was still before the flat screens, like, you know, your big, ugly white computer. And we had limited amount of internet that you could use. So I'm sitting there quickly jumping on my broking account and trying to place an options trade and, you know, go long, go short and all this stuff. And somehow through the chaos, I managed to turn five grand basically into, I think, 50 or $60,000 in the space of half a year. And I thought I was a genius. Like, to me, I thought I was like, man, I'm God. I figured this out. I will be a millionaire by the time I'm 20. You know, game, set, match. I'll be retired in my 20s. So what then happened was my early wake-up call. So... It was a week before I was turning 20 and my dream was to be a millionaire by the time I was 20. So that's sort of, I had this crazy notion in my head and I had levered up on these banking options and I can't remember what the cause of it was, but it was, I think it was sort of August 16th, 2007. There was like some pre-tremors and I can't remember if it was a problem with Lehman or Bear Stearns or someone, but something had happened and the market had 
tanked overnight. And I remember waking up in the morning and I was like, look at my portfolio and my, like if my trades had gone my way, I wouldn't have been worth a mil, but maybe, you know, a quarter of a million dollars in like a month or two. But my entire account, like the $60,000 was worth, I think 15 or something. I'd got wiped in one night and I'm sitting there looking at it, like refreshing the page, thinking that there's something wrong here. And anyway, I proceeded over the next four or five months to basically lose everything and then lever up with margin and some other loans and this and that. And anyway, my dream of being a millionaire by the time I was 20 turned into being a quarter of a million dollars down in my early 20s. (laughs) Yeah. And that's kind of where I started my 20s. And I was sitting there. So in 2008, like at the beginning of it saying, well, I had the Chiron reverse, (laughs) Not, (laughs) not forward. So I was basically forced to drop out of uni. And this is sort of where my business career started was I dropped out of uni. I was an extreme introvert, which most people would find strange if they know me now. But I was an extreme introvert. I didn't like talking to people. And I, you know, I had, I had to pay one bank $1,000 a week for the loan. I had to pay another bank $650 a week for the loan. Like it was all this sort of, I was tied up in so many ways. And the only thing I could get on short notice it was a door-to-door sales company. And it, it wasn't a job in the traditional sense. I was just a contractor and it was just pure commission. You would knock on the doors and uh, we were selling pay TV. And man, I didn't like, I had to leave my home and all this stuff. I moved into some, some dude's apartment and like, I didn't have a TV. I didn't know what was on the channels. And I'm like living in this crap hole of an apartment on a mattress in the living room And basically, my day consisted of waking up in the morning, training, going to the office, training other salespeople, and knocking on doors from basically midday through to 9 p.m. And then at nighttime from 9 p.m. through to midnight, basically reading about markets and just basic economics, trying to figure out what in the name of Christ did I do wrong? How did I lose all the money? And and that was sort of where I forged, I guess, my the first maybe you know early ingredients of what has aligned me to Bitcoin today is because I didn't have someone to bail me out. I had to take responsibility for my losses. I didn't have a paycheck. I didn't have no consistent, like I had to, if I didn't sell, I didn't eat. And like, I had to like on average, just to give you an idea of how determined I was, the average person in the company would maybe sell five subscriptions to pay television per week. And they'd earn about 500 bucks a week. I had to, sell 20 just to pay my bills and eat let alone make any savings so i was a demon man like i became one of the best sales because i studied neurolinguistics nlp you know linguistic hypnotherapy and all this sort of stuff just to learn how to talk to people particularly at a door because you know you knock on someone's door the first thing they generally tell you is to piss off and i would use all sorts of linguistic patterns to you know build rapport quickly with them and all this stuff and what i found was that none of like what actually was on the TV or the channels or any of that, that really didn't matter. What mattered was, you know, creating a connection with somebody, mm-hmm. building enough rapport. So, and what they did was they buy you, they don't buy the product necessarily. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, I did that for six months. I felt like my soul was crushed because I was selling something, <laughs> you know, that I hated, like I was selling pay television and I didn't believe in it. So, you know, I left that, I went and sold for some other corporate company, you know, I was selling phone plans and then they ripped me off. They didn't pay me any of the commissions. So then I had to go back and start that again. So those sort of early days were really hard until 
I ended up saying, you know, why am I building this other guy's business? I set out, set up my own little sales company, found my own products, and all the salespeople that I was training in the prior company, they didn't like it there. They all followed me. And then I sort of built my first successful business in my early 20s. I think I was 21 by this stage, 21, 22. And really sort of dug myself out of the hole initially with that. We, we, you know, we did quite well. And then my business partner at the time, he was older than me and he was a bankrupt. So all the stuff was in my name. Anyway, we sort of had a, a schism in the way we wanted to run the business. So we kind of parted ways. And then I learned my first real lesson in business, which was don't put everything in your name. <laughs> uh, you know, there's moral hazard and liability that exists. So we, you know, when we split the money in the account, we all thought everything was fair, but then came the taxes and all the liabilities and everything to wind stuff up. And I, I called him up. I'm like, oh, dude, we didn't split the money right. And he's like, well, that's your problem now. Um, mm. So then, you know, I kind of, all the money that I'd saved up in that kind of disappeared and I had to start again. And then I would say after that was my first major success of a business where I built a renewable energies business. So I started selling solar panels for other companies and then found that the companies that I was selling for were just incompetent. They took way too long to install and they'd fuck it up, this and that. So then I kind of brought my engineering expertise and my attention to detail to that process. And I just started owning the entire supply chain, which is I found suppliers, I found installers, and I did the sales. So I did the whole vertical integration, provided a better service, yada, yada, yada. And yeah, by the time I was 23, I kind of made my first mill. And, you know, I was late to the party and it was a real trial by fire but i think that planted the seeds for me for basically my entrepreneurial journey thereafter which is you know you need to know how to communicate you need to know how to sell and you need to i think probably most importantly is know how to live with having your back against the wall where there is no paycheck guaranteed you know that ability to stomach that risk and keep moving forward despite like, you know, the, the doors really teach you that. Like when you're knocking on doors and someone tell, like you get five people in a row tell you to go fuck yourself or something, that starts to really mess with your psychology. And, you know, you end up having to build thick skin. And I think all of those things were ingredients, you know, when it came time for me to discover Bitcoin, like that pre-training has really helped me, you know, be sort of who I am today. So anyway, does that give yeah. a bit of a picture? <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Your story is fascinating to me because... Essentially, you you dug yourself into a hole, and it's crazy to me that banks would be giving you margin when you're just like a college student just trading stocks in between classes. But you know that tells you all you need to know about the financial system. They they kind of put you into slavery, mm-hmm. and then you get into sales, and then you start your own company. And this is something that I've noticed about a lot of startups, and I've been a part of something like thirteen or. 14 different startups in my life. And almost every single one was sort of like engineering oriented because I'm a tech guy, of course. And the thing that I've noticed about a lot of them is that they almost always neglect sales and about like making that personal connection and making sure that the thing that's being sold is actually you a lot of the time. And making that something that you communicate to people is a critical part. And it's interesting how you learn that through this, you know, job selling pay TV. So question for you, how much of that has carried over to your startup world? Like how much of the sales skills that you learned do you credit 
for the success in the businesses that you've had? I think primarily, so definitely in the early businesses, there was a direct impact with the sales stuff in running those businesses. So like I had to, like the solar company, for example, is we had to sell systems. So, you know, that was a direct thing. Later on, like I messed around with franchising and hospitality, and then that required sales skills in a different capacity where I'd, you know, I'd be selling the actual franchise itself. And that was a whole new thing because, you know, you went from, I mean, I went from selling pay TV, which was a hundred dollar ticket item, then to selling a solar system, which was 15 grand, and then to selling a franchise, which was a quarter of a million. They're all very different, you know, modalities, but I would say more recently with Amber in particular, for example, was I had to sell Amber as an idea. So what a lot of people don't think about, you know, and you, you've sort of been in the startup game, so you know this, but most people don't realize is that. When you're creating a startup, particularly a technology startup, you basically go out to the market with, you know, nothing much more than a deck, a promise, and a story, right? Like a narrative to say, look, we're going to do this. And, you know, th- there's nothing there, but you have to go out and convince some people with capital to say, look, I'll sell you a piece of this thing, which doesn't exist yet, by the way. And you have to have faith that not only does this thing make sense, but that there is a market for this thing and that we are the right team or I'm the right leader to execute on this thing. And I will sell you a piece of my company if you give me some real cold, hard cash today. And the promise is that in the future, if we do well, your cash is going to be worth more down the track. And this is capitalism at work, right? It's This is... Mm. Why it always makes me angry when I hear academics talk about, oh, yeah, you know, business owners have a lucky entrepreneur. It's like, no, no, no. You go out and you've genuinely got to put your balls on the line to sell a promise. And then likewise, the backers, the investors, they actually have to take real capital from today that may have taken them 5, 10, 15 years to save up. And they need to risk that, a pipe dream effectively to, you know, to hope that something eventuates in the future. And like that right there is actually the engine of civilization (laughs) like you know when people bash entrepreneurs like it makes me so angry it's like do you even know the level of sacrifice that goes into this and the level of ridicule and the level of crap you need to go through along the way so to to answer your question and like how has sales impacted this now in amber it's been a little bit more indirect i haven't had to sell you know bitcoin to people one by one right because it's an app that people find they download and they, they buy some bitcoin but man, did I have to sell the business as an idea to not only investors, but like, you know, every conference that I went to in the beginning, especially in 2018, like I was raising money in the doldrums of the bear market. And like I kind of said earlier, it's like, you know, people with dumb ICO scams were raising millions. And I'm sitting there like trying to sell people on the idea of, hey, no, there's nothing there. There's nothing in this ICO pump and dump. Here's a real company. And guess what? We're doing something simple. We're helping people buy Bitcoin and we have an exchange fee on it. And people like, they literally thought that it was just like too boring. They wanted (laughs) posters on the blockchain, you know, with their own token or something. It was like, so yeah, I had to really get good at selling. And, And what I found was I had, sorry, I had to really use what I'd learned in sales. And what I had to do, particularly with Amber, was I not only had to sell Amber as a business, but I had to sell Bitcoin as a concept. Because if I got them mm. over the line with Bitcoin, then the Amber proposition made a lot of sense. But if I couldn't get them across the line with Bitcoin, then there was no way they were going to invest in Amber. 
So it was like this, I had two jobs to do that. And I don't think if, if I didn't have that experience from early on, if I wasn't forged in the fire of selling door to door, there is not a chance I think I, we would have made it through 2018 and 2019 because there's no way anyone would have given me money in their right mind. Like we had to push through that. Yeah. And this is something that a lot of startup entrepreneurs don't like or aren't used to is having to sell essentially yourself. Because like you said, it really is about selling an idea, a dream. And they're really not investing in the dream per se, 90% of the time, or at least the good VCs, they're investing in you. They're investing in the person. And it really is kind of like selling yourself and saying, being able to say, this is what I know. And here's why you should invest in me. And that is an extremely uncomfortable thing for a lot of people, as as I'm sure you know from your days in sales. But going back to this sort of altcoin era of 2018, it occurs to me that a lot of what these people were doing, you know, the ICO people, they were using sort of sales techniques on sort of essentially a product that didn't really exist. Can you sort of like evaluate for me how good from a sales perspective, like somebody like Vitalik Buterin is, or maybe even somebody like Craig Wright, like how, like as salespeople, like people obviously believe in those guys to varying degrees. As somebody that is sort of like an expert in sales, how do you evaluate them? What are they trying to do and how are they selling? And like, what do you find compelling about their pitch and versus not and so on? Okay, cool. So let's pull in a couple of threads here. So Number one, I feel like during that ICO period, the um, you know there was like people who were really good at marketing, and they benefited disproportionately not just because of their own skill as potential marketers or salespeople, but actually they benefited from a broader hype cycle that emerged because of these Ponzi's and overnight millionaires effectively. So, so there didn't actually there wasn't really many good salespeople in that space. Like I know that. I would get up and I was just way more compelling on stage, even though on what it, it seemed that I had a more, you know, lackluster offering, which is, hey, you know, you can invest in equity and in five years there might be an exit. Whereas these guys were saying, we're doing a pre-sale of the token today and then in three months time, it's going to go to the public and there'll be a 10x increase. They're literally selling unregistered securities and these people are buying it, right? So like, and for me, like there's a level of like, morality that one needs when they're selling something right so so to me these people weren't really good salespeople. and there there was literally two types there was the sharks who knew what they were doing wrong and they were just taking advantage of people they knew that they were printing their own money but they didn't give a crap then there was the people who actually genuinely thought they were selling something for real but they were too stupid to understand basic economics or you know basic business so they were lacking those primitives and in that case like i actually don't think you as a founder have you you have a moral duty to be selling something of substance to somebody like you can't just sell them a pipe dream like and let me make a small distinction here so whilst i was selling a pipe dream with amber i was doing it with my skin in the game so i was selling a part of my company to investors not what the token guys were doing or the ICO guys were doing, they had zero skin in the game. So basically the investor took on all the risk, they outlaid all the capital and they got zero company. They got zero 
security, got none of that. So there was a big, I guess, cognitive dissonance on their part, but there was also like just a, a material difference between what we were selling. Like if I were to relate that to the pay TV stuff, like, you know, although I didn't like pay TV, I was actually selling a service that worked, right? So there was the pay TV, you know, the alternative, these guys would have been selling, you know, a satellite pay TV dish that had no channels on it. You know what I mean? <laughs> so that's a very different thing that one's a scam and the other one is a product or service, despite what one might think about the merits of the said product or service. So, so that's sort of, I think with that foundation, we can look at now people like Buterin and Craig Wright, et cetera, you know, through a more functional lens. Now, Buterin is an interesting one. Vitalik is an interesting one. So he, you know, is, he's a natural, hmm, no, let, let me, let me phrase this properly. He is a beneficiary of the rise of the Silicon Valley tech nerd slash entrepreneur archetype, right? Mm -hmm. Is that people have seen over the last 20 years with the rise of the dot-coms and particularly particularly the Mark Zuckerberg type archetype that emerged in the second wave of the dot-com era, so post-2008, that these young nerds who came out of some sort of university, they were young, they were nerdy, completely socially awkward, that those people were supposedly a ticket to future riches. So if you found yourself the right nerd who was socially awkward, who, you know, talked, you know, language that you didn't understand, that if you bet on them, there was a possibility that you might make, you know, a nice exit. You might be the next Peter Thiel, for example, right? So I think Vitalik has disproportionately benefited from that. Now, he's not a natural salesperson. You know, he just dons – I mean, unless you want to define this as good as a salesperson, but he really wears the, you know, the, the character of that nerdy Silicon Valley type person very well. And, you know, in the early days when I was first getting into – you know, Bitcoin and understanding all this stuff. Like I would listen to him and I thought he was brilliant. Like, but I didn't know what the fuck he was talking about, but I was like, man, this kid sounds really smart until, you know, I started digging. And lucky for me, I had a, a background in math and, you know, just sort of natural principles and things like that. So I, you know, over time deciphered, you know, the wheat from the chaff, but Vitalik is, yeah, I think he's a disproportionately benefits from that stereotype, which stupid people just throw money against and then you've also still got the just the i guess the shadow or the remnant of the ico boom like there was there's still this almost notion in the broader crypto space that if you you know pick the right horse you can become a millionaire overnight and just sort of the the liquidity around whether it was icos whether it's crypto or whether it's DeFi now like they all sort of have that same Ponzi promise of you can get in there, make a quick buck and get the hell out. So that sort of, you know, there's a benefit of that shadow. And then also because the way they, you know, if we give him the benefit of doubt of innocence, you know, he might genuinely misinterpret Bitcoin's raison d'etre and as a result, try and frame Ethereum as some sort of Bitcoin 2.0 or whatever. And in doing so, can also benefit from the broader sales pitch that Bitcoin has. And Bitcoin's sales pitch is perfect. 
It's better money that is unfuckwithable, <laughs> that is uncensorable, that is uninflatable. And and as a result, this is better than the status quo. Like, And the pitch is this idea of a fairer world. So Ethereum's kind of co-opted that pitch and really nicely tried to apply it or kind of nicely tried to apply it to everything else, including yeah, toasters on the blockchain or you know whatever the next uh, DeFi Ponzi is, you know, sweet potatoes or whatever they're doing these days. So that's my comments on Vitalik. Mm. Craig Wright is a, another beast entirely. I think he's just, man, he's kind of like there's a, there's sort of like the hawk and dove strategy when you're selling. And, you know, the dove strategy is you sort of, you know, you appeal to people, uh, whereas the hawk strategy is you sort of, you talk at people and you kind of, you know, push them into a corner through some sort of excessive bravado or excessive kind of self-confidence. Now, some people are genuinely good at that. I don't think Craig's good at that. I think he's actually hopeless at doing that. But for some reason, he's managed to convince a cohort of complete idiots that he is somehow someone. And I actually think that is less of a testament to his ability to sell and more of a testament to the absolute stupidity of some human beings. (laughs) And honestly, we see it with flat earthers. We see it with, you know, with BSVers. We see it with, you know, Karens who want to force everyone to wear masks and everything like these people don't think. And what I actually think they're lacking more than anything else is a kind of an authority figure in their lives. So as a result, they end up finding some stupid authority figure, whether it's Craig Wright or whether it's the invisible state or whatever else it is, and they lap that shit up. They think that it's their own, you know, voluntary acceptance of that or something. Like, it's just strange. So I don't know. I, I don't consider Craig a good salesperson at all. I just think that he really appeals to the dumbest of the dumb. And as a result, he's found himself a niche. Well, so it sounds like what you said earlier about sales, which I think is absolutely true, is that oftentimes what you're selling is not the product itself. You're actually selling yourself, right? And Mm -hmm. this is what we talked about with raising funds and all that. And what you're describing with Vitalik is that he was sort of this archetype that people wanted to buy regardless of, of everything else. He's just this you know, supposed wonderkin that you can invest in and make a hundred times your money or something like that. Similar with Craig Wright, he's this sort of like overly bombastic, sort of like insulting, you know, kind of like, I know what the hell I'm talking about, absent father figure or something that people sort of wanted to latch onto. So in a sense, what you're saying is the people that are following these people are buying them for a reason. So let's go back to that a little bit. Why do they want to buy that? Like you hinted that perhaps it was the lack of some sort of authority figure, but is there something else behind it? Obviously, people want to make money too, but that doesn't seem to have stopped people from investing in BSV, which hasn't gone up in you know a couple of years or whatever. So your thoughts? I think, I think it's this just sort of confusion of what the contrarian bet means. So like I, you know, I love Peter Thiel's framing. I think he's got the ultimate question on contrarianism, which is what's something that uh, you believe is true that very few people agree with you on. And I think I'm paraphrasing it there a little bit. And mm-hmm. that is an extremely difficult thing to answer accurately. Honestly, I, the only answer I've ever found is Bitcoin because 
most people, whether you're in crypto, they don't like Bitcoin, whether you're in blockchain, they don't like crypto, whether you're in fintech, they don't like crypto, whether you're in banking, they don't like crypto, whether you're in the state, they don't like, sorry, they don't like Bitcoin. So none of, like everyone thinks Bitcoin is stupid, but if you look at it from first principles, you realize that you have the ultimate contrarian bet. Now, there's another form of contrarian bet, which is, I don't think gravity is real, so I'm going to jump off the balcony, you know, or I think that, you know, people driving on one side of the road versus the other is stupid, so I'm going to drive on the opposite side of the road. That's also a contrarian bet. That's a dumb contrarian bet. So I think what these people lack is the ability to differentiate between the nature of contrarian bets that are rooted in first principles versus something that seems to be contrarian just on the surface. So BSV looks like a Bitcoin contrarian bet if you look at it. And a lot of the BSV is what you'll hear them talk about is that, hey, you guys are wrong and you know you guys are part of the mainstream stupidity that is buying into this thing called BTC, which is the fake Bitcoin. We're right and we're taking the contrarian bet. And that to me is akin to driving on the wrong side of the road or trying to defy gravity by jumping off the balcony because it's not rooted in first principles. It's rooted in their faith in some, like you said, bombastic megalomaniac that said something. So, so they sort of lack the ability to go into the first principles of it. Similar to Ethereum, I guess, you know, once again, it's these narratives that really drive behavior. And this is why I love Bitcoin from a, you know, the, the whole don't trust verify thing. It's like, you know, and just the pure simplicity of Bitcoin just as a as an idea, it's really good. And I think people are seeking some sort of, you know, new contrarian bet. Because like, I think also Bitcoin derangement syndrome comes into this is like, they're so salty that they missed out on Bitcoin in the early days, that they have to try and find the next one. So that would have an impact, you know, and this idea that, you know, they want to buy into a narrative and Bitcoin's just too simple of a narrative. So it has to be more complex than this. There has to be something else. And that kind of, actually, that reminds me a little bit of Amber is that Amber was a simple business model. I went out and I said, hey, you invest in my company. The premise is that more and more people over time are going to want to buy Bitcoin. So they're going to need a gateway to do that. We believe that Bitcoin is the only one. So there is no need to fill our our app with shit coins. So we're going to stay Bitcoin only. And we're going to effectively be a gateway for people to move fiat into Bitcoin. We're going to create some automation. And our revenue model is really simple. We earn you know, 2% for all the money that flows through. And people were like, what else? And I'm like, well, <laughs> we don't need anything else. And they just thought that that was too simple. So I think one of the ramifications, I guess, of a fiat society is that we tend to over-complexify things because we have this sort of need to validate the stupidity that we're working on because, you know, the simpler the problem, the more... You know, there's almost like a desire to not deal with that stuff and to kind of mire yourself in bureaucratic, academic sophistry, in a sense, and try and plate it up as something incredible. And that is the definition of a deep, important problem that you're somehow going to solve. And that might validate your ego in some way. So, so I think it's, I don't think it's one thing. It's just, I think it's such a mixture of all of these weird, unresolved psychological issues with so many people that they end up converging on these stupidities, whether BSV, Bitcoin Cash, Ethereum, and all this sort of stuff. 
Yeah, it reminds me of something that I, it's a term that I coined a while back, which is crypto Gnosticism. And if you mm-hmm. know what Gnosticism is, it was this interesting, like, sect heresy of Christianity where they were saying that you needed to know the secret knowledge which won't be revealed until something happens. So it's become sort of like a catch-all phrase for where if you're in the in-group only if you understand it, but no outsider is actually going to understand it. And there's this desire almost to be in that in-group and sort of like tell everyone else that you're stupid and that it's, you know, you wouldn't understand unless you were in that group. And that's what a lot of all coining actually feels like. So from a sales perspective, explain that to me. How does that process work? And what sort of appeals do you have to do in order to get, you know, appeal to people? Like what are the sort of ingredients that go into that? Yeah, interesting. So there's one of the things when I was doing door to door that they used to teach was there was and I can't remember all of them, but there was like fear of loss. There was you know, attitude. There, there, there was a couple of things there, but one of them is called the Jones theory. And what that is, is basically social proof. And we would use that to help encourage people to, you know, consider buying a product. So you would say something like, oh, you know, I was just around the corner speaking to your neighbor. You drop a name, for example. And, you know, it's sort of, you know, they just signed up, you know, they got the best deal ever, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, you, you sort of say it to them. So so, so that's like a, an age-old uh, sales tool. And that just comes from, like, it's a function of our need as human beings to belong. And, mm. you know, social proof is such a powerful thing. I mean, we see it today with the mask mandates, right? Is like... You know, if, if you don't wear a mask, you know, the social proof is kind of like against you and you feel like almost, you know, people look at you as if you're walking around naked, you know, if your mouth, you know, is uncovered, you know, God help you. And it's, I think the sort of altcoiners have, you know, done, I must give them credit where credit's due. They've done a good job of sort of creating those little clubs and they've done it with the incentive of, here I am, I've made millions and you can too. So it's kind of like the it's a mixture of sort of the Jones theory, a mixture of the fear of loss and the mixture of the promise of, you know, future upside. It's like you sort of put those in and if, you know, and this might sound bad, but I mean, if you're a simple-minded person who doesn't, who's not been forged kind of in the fire of having to earn your way through life, who's had to like really work for things and who's not under the illusion that things come free and cheap, you will get sucked into that stuff. And that's the kind of people that, you know, all this altcoin crap preys on, like all this shit coinery preys on it, like literally preys on this idea. And I think that's also actually a function of fiat society as well is, you know, we've been, you know, we've had sort of make your money grow drummed into all of us. And, you know, this notion that you just give your money to somebody and they'll manage it kind of drummed into us so much or this kind of this renunciation of personal responsibility when it comes to building capital and investing that, you know, somebody else knows better and you just have to trust the expert. Like that kind of stupidity has been drummed in so far and wide in society that it almost becomes like, in many ways, shooting fish in a barrel for a lot of these altcoin pump and dump scammers who, you know, they just appeal to that lowest common denominator for people who genuinely have a weak psychology, low self-esteem, and who, are, who have been 
in many ways, I guess, sheltered from the reality of life that things things aren't like I always say things are simple, but they're not easy. And that's why I love Bitcoin. It's like, it's, you know, <laughs> it, it's really simple, right? But it's, uh, you know, the, the path to understanding it and the path to staying strong on it is actually not easy. You get ridiculed, whereas people want things to be complex and easy, you know, so, so they want the fucking opposite. Uh, you know, they're, they're seeking the complexity of Ethereum and, you know, and the Wonderkind that Vitalik supposedly represents, but they want it to be easy, which is, oh, that complexity I'll never understand. So it's just easier for me to throw money in that direction and I'll become rich overnight just by following that. And actually, I think that's a really important point there. Like, and I've kind of stumbled on it, but I think that difference between simple and hard, which is the, which is the path of like sort of the warrior and the sovereign individual and the, and the person with, you know, courage, you know, or what we spoke about last time, the virtues like prudence, temperance, Help me out with the other two. Justice uh, and fortitude, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so, so they're simple but hard, right? Whereas, you know, this other pathway that has sort of been, you know, suggested and illuminated for people these days is, you know, complex. You know, positivism is as complex as can be. Like everything is relative, and but it's supposedly easy because it can just be whatever you want it to be and you just place your entire responsibility in the hands of someone else to decide for you. So it's like... Yeah, I, th- I think altcoinery and shitcoinery and ICOs and all that is, I think, a real function of the theatization of society. So anyway, I don't know how I got there. Yeah, but- yeah, that totally makes sense. Because at least hearing your story, you had a lot of those early lessons where you realized, okay, no one's going to bail me out. <laughs> I played with all this money and I was a quarter million down. That taught you that, okay, there is no such thing as complicated and easy. There's just simple and difficult, right? Like simple and you have to work really hard. And yet there's this sense for a lot of these altcoiners that you really can make money easily. You just you don't have to understand it. You can just sort of throw your money at it. And I think you hinted at this before. That's sort of like the immoral way to sell. Whereas, you know, what you were describing earlier was a much more moral way to sell, which is here's a product and you get an equity on it. And, you know, it's going to take some time. There's this risk, but, you know, you'll end up making money probably if you believe in this product. And, you know, like that's like the moral way. So tell us a little bit more about that difference and why sort of immoral selling, which is promises that don't actually pan out, why it works so well, especially given sort of the fiat mentality that everyone has. Man, if I could sum it up with one sentence, I would say skin in the game. So selling something from a position of morality, particularly like if I use it in the context of a, of a business, is the skin in the game element. So when I was selling equity in Amber, man, I was on, like if I make the US dollar equivalent, my salary was $26,000 a year. Peanuts, <laughs> absolute peanuts. And so like I had skin in the game. I sold a part of the company. So I was giving someone else skin in the game for the journey whereas and if we failed i would also end up with nothing so you know i think talib really points this out nicely he says you know true equality is equality and probability so you can remove moral hazard by us all sort of being in the on the same boat you know and like great examples of being on the same boat is literally being on the same boat or let's say like a pilot who's flying a plane, you know, like he's 
the incentive for him to not crash the plane is pretty high because he's in the cockpit, right? So, you know, this sort of skin in the game, this equality of probability is what gives rise to moral selling. Whereas when we look at fiat, we look at this, the, the, the emergence of moral hazard, which is how can I take a risk that somebody else will pay for? And therein lies the one of, I think, the core problems of society today is the renunciation of responsibility. It always comes back to that. Like me and Francis Puglia were on a call the other day, and we sort of, he described the problem with modernity as this in consistent or incessant, what he called ass covering and plausible deniability. And kind of, I had been on a call earlier talking about how the loss of responsibility is actually where the cause of all of today's problems are. And, and we just sort of said the same thing, but in different ways. And that's what we're seeing in the fiat world today. And when it comes to immoral selling, immoral selling is literally the definition of moral hazard. Like if you look up in Investopedia and you find what moral hazard is, it'll tell you that it is taking risk that you do not have to pay for. So that you do, so you're doing something, and you have zero skin in the game, and your fuck up, your the consequence of your mistake is somebody else's bill or somebody else's problem, and that I think is a de-evolutionary force. It will bring down a business. It will uncover a lie. It'll destroy a society. It will destroy a relationship, a family, all these sorts of things, a nation, a state, you know, a community, all this sort of stuff. When you introduce moral hazard, when you introduce the capacity for somebody to take risk and somebody else bears that cost, particularly unknowingly. And this is where, I guess, what the ICO people did and the Ethereum and the shitcoiners and the and the crypto people and the blockchainers and all this sort of stuff. That is literally how they operate. They operate with moral hazard at the forefront is they sell you stuff based on complete broken, empty promises like NFTs. I was trying to coach this girl earlier who was on one of my clubhouse calls and she was like sort of talking to me about NFTs and stuff. And I'm like, look, I know your intent here is right. Like she's trying to you know make the point that you know, the, this new technology is going to enable artists to sell direct to their people and cut out like, you know, the, the middleman. And then I was like, look, in theory, that sounds really nice. But what you're doing is you're, you're going to end up having the rug pulled from under you because the foundation upon which you're selling this idea is a broken promise foundation. Like you can't, like, if you're going to have an NFT, like a unique thing, you need to do it on something that's immutable. Newsflash, Ethereum ain't immutable. It's, you know, it's what Vitalik says it is this week. So this is where like good people. So she's a perfect example of someone who will be a victim of moral hazard. She's bought into a lie. So she's going to build this entire edifice of promise for what she's trying to do and sell that to a bunch of people. And sort of lie will be built upon lie. And, you know, the further it builds out from the, the centerpiece of the lie, the more fragile it effectively becomes and the more innocent it is genuinely because they don't know what's at the core. You know, there's all these sorts of dependencies. And then the whole thing sort of caves in on itself when the foundation falls apart. And that couldn't be like more different to Bitcoin, right? It's like Bitcoin, we've got this solid, 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 solid core. And after 12 or 13 years, we're still focusing on the goddamn core. You know, we're not sort of trying to abstract out too quickly because we know that we need to make sure that the core, the foundation is actually strong. And then we can kind of build out and provide promises that do not contain 
the moral hazard, which is what we're effectively fighting for. So when you start to remove moral hazard from the game and you start to reintroduce skin in the game, like that's what Bitcoiners have more than anything else. We've all got skin in the game. I mean, we're all so far into Bitcoin that if this thing collapses, we're all going to be paupers living on the street. You know, so it's like there is no greater example of moral selling or a moral idea or skin in the game than Bitcoin. And there is, you know, I mean, there are a few better examples of the opposite, which is immoral selling, pure moral hazard and, you know, just fuckery when it comes to crypto and shit coining and everything, which is, again, just a pure function of, well, not a pure function, but to a large degree, a function of the theatization of modernity where we're just passing responsibility down the line and you know the the poor bastard who catches the potato last is you know is the loser and (laughs) at this stage that loser is probably going to be our kids uh, unless we change things yeah that's interesting so i think the all coiner pushback would be something like but you know these guys all have the you know their own coin and so on would the response be, well, they got a pre-mine or they're printing their own money or like what's like, how is it that they don't have skin in the game? Like, because if that's your main argument, like, like, how do you measure skin in the game if they already own some of the coin? In a sense, they have skin in that game. Well, yes, I guess that is a good point. They do have some skin in the game. But the question is, is they were able to produce a promise out of thin air that that promise is then sold to someone. So their income would have been denominated in Bitcoin, Ethereum, cash or whatever. So they're basically getting money for nothing. So they basically remove their risk because like skin in the game is proportionate basically. So if I had to spend 10 million to build a network and then I sold 4 million of it. So I actually still have skin in the game. But if I only spent, you know, 20 grand writing a bullshit white paper and then selling a token, you know, spent 10 grand, you know, paying a developer, you know, whatever. So my in is 50 grand, but I, you know, sold 10 million of this. I'm sort of out like I've exceeded my original skin in the game. Now, even if I'm holding coins later, it doesn't matter. Like I've already removed my skin in the game. So I don't have the downside that all of the holders of that promise have. And that's kind of, I guess, in a sense, how I would kind of rebut that piece. I don't know if there's anything else you want to pull on in there. Yeah, I I mean, I was thinking that maybe it's because they essentially print more of it whenever they want. So the moral hazard is still there. In a sense, the skin that they have in the game, they can increase at any time or they're continuously decreasing by printing more of it so it's not really skin in the game exactly they can dilute it at will basically so more often than not depending on how much they issue in the beginning they're either completely like they've eliminated all if not you know they've sorry they've eliminated most if not all of the skin in the game by their initial cashing out but then yeah furthermore much like whether it's the u.s government or whatever like they don't you know they don't care if they print more money because all of us are paying for it. So, you know, the Cantillon effect produces a situation where the cost of printing is borne by the individuals at the end. Now, you know, moral hazard is also something, I guess, that it's not, you know, like most things in life, it's not purely binary, 
but maybe you know it's asymptotic in nature it's like you know, the, the skin in the game diminishes very quickly in the beginning. And th- there might be some level of skin in the game, like, you know, a an alt coiner who's produced his own coin might still hold some. So there's still a remnant of, you know, some skin in the game. But by and large, the majority of it has been withdrawn in the early days. So that, I think, is really important. Yeah, yeah. All right, so let, let's talk about... Bitcoin maximalism, because you talked very at the very beginning about how you came to it after, you know, like going down these other rabbit holes. So the question I have for you is, how can we market Bitcoin better or how can we sell Bitcoin better? Because currently, you know, it, it's obviously popular right now because of the bull market. But mm-hmm. in a sense, like, you know, people want to buy these complicated, easy things instead of the simple, hard thing. What can we as a community do better to to sell Bitcoin to those that don't really know about it? Like, what are we doing? What can we, how can we do this better? Hmm. I would say that there's two, two approaches. I think one thing is, so when you're selling, posture is really important. And then what I mean by posture is sort of how you position yourself in relation to the buyer. So... I like, I'll give a crude example. When I used to have a hospitality shop, I mean, I was, it was like a little health food shop where we did smoothies and stuff like that. And even there, I guess my sales came into action was, you know, when I had a customer who was sitting there arming and ahhing at the bloody cash register and, you know, there'd be a lineup of customers behind them. It would cause pandemonium in, in the shop because people would get angry and this and that. So I came up with a strategy, which is tell the customer what they want, which is, hey, you know, I created almost like a, not, not a script, but like I taught the, the team to sort of talk like I did, which is, are you feeling like something more chocolatey or something more fruity? So, so then I'd sort of take them down this path of decision making. So chocolatey, fruity, then I'd say, okay, they say, oh, fruity. And then I'd say, like, are you more of a manga person, more of a berry person? They say, oh, I'm more of a berry person. Okay, sweet. Then I would recommend this or this. I mean, if they are, then I'd sort of push them toward the decision and kind of help them make that decision. So basically I would, the posture I would take was that, you know, I would be almost guiding their their decision-making by giving them alternative, really strict alternatives. So that, I guess, aside from the alternatives, aside from the strategy, my posture was that I was in control. So I wasn't begging them for the sale. I was almost, I knew they had a need, and I would sort of just position this need to them. Oh, sorry, position the solution for their need to them. And if they weren't interested, then they could fuck off. I didn't care. Like, so my positioning was like really almost nonchalant. Like, you know, you either want it or you don't piss off. So it's kind of, it does not come off desperate where, you know, I saw a lot of this sort of selling, you know, desperate sort of selling when I was doing door to door. It's like, and you can kind of tell where it comes from. It's like people, like you'd be knocking on the door for six hours and people telling you to piss off for six hours. And at some point, like you get desperate and you're like, you're not going to do this. Like, please listen to me. I'm here to sell you some pay TV. And nobody wants to be around that. Nobody wants to be begged for a sale. Like mm-hmm. th- there's a strategy called the takeaway almost. It's like, look, I'm here to, you know, like if I use the pay TV example, it's like, look, I'm just in the street today and there's a promotion going on for, you know, XP TV service. I'm not sure if you qualify though. In order for you to qualify, I just need to uh, just double check a couple of things with you. Do you have a moment? So basically I'd be taking it away from them. So make them earn it. So it's funny. I think you and I may have been on a, um, 
think you want to bloody yeah, yeah this yeah, one yeah. thing yeah i think i mentioned it there it's sort of like the sort of the takeaway it's like you posture yourself as the one with the goods and mm-hmm. get them to come to you because if i feel like that's where maybe bitcoiners are going wrong a little bit is we've almost become this you know desperate crew of like oh look you know come and buy bitcoin because it's so good for you and like we're almost begging for it so i think one strategy is the, is the posture which is screw them like we know that bitcoin's good and let them come and ask us and we don't you know give them everything at once we just sort of bite size and and let them come now the thing about that is you know it's really going to require a level of um i guess push from their side which is they might need a real reason which is pain now the the pain could be from their bank account was closed or you know the purchasing power of their money is lowering or they got scammed in some altcoin or whatever so i guess that one is more of a passive strategy mm-hmm. now the other one i would say is getting out of our kind of community and finding groups or communities that have values or at least a proportion of values that are aligned. So when Trump officially, you know, I guess left and everything, you know, I kind of said that Trump will probably be the catalyst to orange pill more people than just about anyone else in the last decade. Because with him, for example, being locked out of bank accounts and a lot of his followers having you know, I guess being forced to think about censorship now, but also having some values that align with Bitcoiners, you know, so a lot of pro-Trump people, for example, were for small government, you know, and, and things like that, which, you know, more the the power of the individual over the collective and stuff like that. Now, they weren't, they're not totally like libertarian or ANCAP and things like that. So, so they probably would consider people like you and I are radicals, but there is alignment with, I think enough values for them to, and there's the emergence of a little bit of pain through this censorship and you know, through this loss that we we have a hook there to present Bitcoin in a light that solves one of their problems. And this is probably where I guess you know maybe why you wanted to talk about sales today is like this ability to find that hook is so incredibly important. It's like you know, if, if someone's issue is that they got censored and you start talking about, oh, you know, the Bitcoin is uninflatable and everything, it's like, well, you're talking the wrong language, man. Talk about the fact that Bitcoin was used for as money that is uncensorable from day dot and that no one can screw with it. Then all of a sudden, guess what? They'll listen because you're dealing with their problem as opposed to, you know, beating them over the head with something that they're not interested in. You know, the, the uninflatable one is an interesting one because we all know that that's one of the most important attributes of Bitcoin is the fact that it is fixed in supply. But a lot of people in the Western world, because they haven't felt the damage or like they haven't as explicitly felt the damage of a collapsing currency, that one, I would argue, almost falls on deaf ears in a sense. So, you know, we need to find a better hook for that. And yeah, so I would say that. So it's like finding communities that have problems at the moment, whose values we can align with to some degree, and then positioning some element or attribute of Bitcoin as a solution to that, getting them in. And I would still say then combining that with the posture of 
we have a solution and I'm not begging you to come here. If you're interested, come. If you're not, stick with your fucking fiat funny money and kind mm-hmm. of, you know, position it that way. So, so that would probably be my two-pronged approach to this. Yeah, you brought up a lot of good points there, especially with regard to, you know, how people perceive it. And this is something that every startup person actually could use the information that you presented, which is you you have to solve somebody's problem in order to sell to them. If you're just like sort of, you know, positioning and they, they're not biting on the hook, then it doesn't matter what you say, they're not going to do anything. So in a sense, you, you have to solve a specific problem. And that's something that I think as Bitcoiners, we talk about a lot of things in generalities, whereas the specifics are generally what people get people to come into something is when they have a problem and you go, well, here's a solution. That's the posturing, the positioning that Bitcoin has in spades that we don't really generally push quite as well as we could be doing. Is that a good summation of what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a perfect summation. I mean, Michael Saylor is one of the perfect examples, right? He had a problem, which is their cash was melting. And, you know, Bitcoin solved that in a, in a really, really, really profound way. And I guess pr- probably I'd also say the other thing, and Bitcoiners have probably executed on this better than anyone else in the world, is the production of good content. And we, we've been smashing that out of the park, like genuinely smashing, like whether it's these kind of podcasts, whether it's written content, it's just like I think we have really dominated there. And, and it's no wonder. It's because genuinely Bitcoin attracts the sharpest minds and the sharpest minds are able to synthesize information across so many disciplines into you know these pieces that objectively i guess convincing and compelling for somebody to read especially when somebody has a problem i guess that's more i guess of a channel than anything else than a strategy but we i think we've been doing really well at that so we need to continue doing that and spreading the mind virus better and more articulately than everyone else can. Well, maybe for a lot of people, it's, you know, they need better intellectual discourse that's more compelling and so on. And, you know, that would be one reason to get into this community. I don't know. Very true. All right. So final questions for you. Where do you think Bitcoin is in five to 20 years? Pick any time frame. And how do you think that changes sort of like the nature of sales? Because we talked a lot about you know, the fiat mentality sort of infecting a lot of sales and making people a lot more high, a high time preference. How does that change like what sales is all about these days? Because it does sort of appeal to a very high time preference mindset. But as things change, how does that change sales? Yeah, good, good question. I think I used to think Bitcoin, hyper Bitcoinization was going to take many decades. I think 2020 has proven to me that it's going to happen a lot quicker than what we originally thought because just the house of cards can't stand. It's wobbling way too much. And the, I think who, who wrote it was uh, Obi-Wan Kenobit. I think he calls himself, he wrote a piece that argued Bitcoin's hyper-Bitcoinization will happen in, 20, in the 2020 decade. And I actually subscribe to that more than anything else now. And I think, so that's sort of my position on that. And, you know, whatever the relative fiat value of that is over the next decade, I don't know, but it's going to be significant. So my guess is that Bitcoin will be in the tens of millions mm. sometime in the next decade or whatever. So that's sort of, I, I think it's going to 
hit a, a point where the the acceleration like m- the way I kind of position it for people to think about is when we stop looking at Bitcoin moving, Bitcoin's price moving, and we start looking at sats and we look at one Satoshi moving from one cent to two cents, that actually means Bitcoin moved, you know, whatever the, like, is that $100,000 or a million dollars, I think? I think it's it, a million, yeah. Yeah, a million, exactly. So, but see, the thing is that unit bias of one cent to two cents just doesn't sound like a lot. But Bitcoin will move a million bucks in that space. So that is, I think, when things are really going to get crazy in terms of Bitcoin's nominal movement. And that will really change the wealth dynamics in the world. So then what happens to sales after that? I guess, I think even before sales, what starts to emerge is the desire. So when you're holding on to money that is non-inflationary, you actually, as the buyer, have the opportunity to think twice about what you're trying to buy and you are much more discerning in the goods and services you decide to trade for your Bitcoin. Now, what that does is that puts upward pressure onto any vendor that's trying to sell a good or a service and it forces them, it's a natural forcing function towards making a better product or a service and it will then drive the competition i guess for selling more towards i guess the less of this you know dopamine induced you're going to feel better you're going to look better and shit kind of that's sort of driven in in the world today more to how this solves a potential problem and i know it kind of sounds like semantics but i do think that there's an important distinction in there around the problem like that the products and services in a Bitcoin denominated world will solve as opposed to the fake problems, so-called problems that products and services that are being created today that are artificially funded thanks to paper money. Like I think there's a whole different dynamic there. And and I, I just think sales will be a downstream sales will be affected downstream as opposed to upstream in this case, because you know you, you will want to, like as a company that is solving a proper problem, you are genuinely going to want to get people, you're going to want to hire people that aren't just a fucking run-of-the-mill salesperson who's just going to yap his mouth off about something stupid. Like You're going to want to find someone who genuinely understands the problem in depth, who can you know articulate that to someone who can you know represent the product or service that they're selling. So, so it kind of reintroduces integrity, but at the top of the stream. So like it fixes the kind of products and services that we're going to try and solve because, you know, we dismantle this rat race, almost disproportionate chase to send money to either Wall Street or Silicon Valley for another TikTok or another fucking finance app that's not needed. So I think that's kind of where the dynamics change. I don't know if that's helpful, but. Yeah, no, that's great. Essentially, like, you expect people to think more long-term and be a little more genuine, I, I think, is what you're kind of saying. Yeah, like it creates smarter buyers. I think one of the reasons why sales has become, like what's incentivized sales to become so shit is that we have such shit customers and <laughs> people buying shit. So, so then what happens is like, like, so sales is kind of, effect of the cause which is and i saw this definitely in selling pay television for example the highest 
sales that I got was in really low socioeconomic regions, like people who were doing nothing with their lives. And they were the ones buying pay TV. Like you went into a rich area. I, I used to remember like when I first started, I was like, oh yeah, give me the map where the rich areas, I'll go sell to them. And I go in there, I get told to piss off all day. Then I was like, what's going on here? Then I go to a poor area and I'd get like five, six, seven, ten sales. And I was like, what the? Like, and I really learned firsthand. Like, I think that's how Bitcoin fixes a lot of these things. All right. Yeah, I think what you're saying is that a lot of people that are in poor neighborhoods, they're they're just not very smart about their money. And the fact that they have access to a lot of debt that allows them to buy things that they don't really need, they end up sort of spending it on things like pay TV, which you weren't happy selling in the first place. So in a sense, like, as a result of of what your, you know, Bitcoin and sort of hyper Bitcoinization and, and so on, you just get smarter customers that are harder to fool with what you would call maybe lowbrow sales tactics. Exactly, exactly. And then, then the forcing function for that is better salespeople selling better products. And then that's sort of where a lot of people sort of bag out the whole Bitcoin fixes this thing. It really occurs as a function of fixing some things upstream and then downstream things start to adjust. Like there's a really great saying which I came across the other day and I'm putting this in, a, in an article that I'm writing at the moment, is this idea of the train driver is important because you don't want him to crash the train. Like he's got to stop and start. But what actually matters is where the tracks are laid. Because if the tracks are going to be laid you know, off the side of a cliff, I don't care how good your train driver is, you're going straight off the cliff. And that's how Bitcoin fixes a lot of these things is that the tracks are laid correctly. And, you know, you're not going to fly off the side of a cliff because, you know, we've got a foundation. That makes sense. All right. So where can people find you and your work? So Alex Svetsky, basically, if you if you look that up, it's spelled a little bit different. A-L-E-K-S. And then surname is S-V-E-T-S-K-I. That's my handle on Twitter. It's just Alex Svetsky. I think my medium is svetsky.medium.com. On Clubhouse these days, I've started jumping on there and trying to sort of help people navigate the shit coinery. It's just at Svetsky. And then I do have an Instagram account, but I'm not active on it, but that's also at Alex Svetsky. So it's between those four, there's stuff. There's also the Bitcoin Times, which is a publication. It's a Bitcoin-only publication, which I gather what I believe are the best minds in Bitcoin to produce what I like to call timeless pieces. So something that can be read 10, 20, 30, 50 years from now, and people think like, wow, these guys were like really thinking deeply about this. And obviously you were a contributor to that. And the recent one had also Jeff Booth, Giacomo Zucco, Eric Kaysen, and Parker Lewis, and prior ones that had people like Breedlove and GD and everything. So I encourage people to definitely look at Bitcoin Times. But yeah, Medium, at Svetsky, and then Twitter at, at Alex Svetsky. That's where I'm mostly on. And oh, actually, and I also run a podcast, <laughs> which to me was <laughs> the wake up podcast so yeah check that out too okay all right sounds good thank you for joining us and that was great i really appreciate it jimmy thank you again i think you and i have had a series of really good conversations i think your wife's gonna get jealous man where um we're doing this too often <laughs> uh, yeah uh, she might I really, we'll see. I really i really appreciate it man honestly i think to, these like you said at the beginning is like these kind of conversations are something that are lacking today. And it's a, an absolute pleasure and an honor to, to be able to have these discussions because, I mean, nobody talks about this crap anymore. You know, people are talking about 
their Instagram feed and what the Kardashians are doing and what new stupid shows on Netflix. And it's, it's extremely depressing. So this is, this is <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Well, thanks. We'll talk again. Absolutely. Thanks, Jimmy. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Alex Svetsky can be found at at Alex Svetsky on Twitter and svetsky.medium.com. Until next time, fiat delenda est. <laughs>